in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello and welcome to this week's Bad With Money mailbag episode. I'm Gabby Dunn. This week's Wednesday episode 
introduced my new semi-regular co-host, Mal Blum. Uh, They're going to be our reporter out in the field. They're also going to join me for some mailbags, and they're also going to join me for some regular episodes. Um, Mal is my partner. You guys have really enjoyed them on the show, so we're going to bring them back on a more regular basis. Um, Our first episode is out now. It came out on Wednesday, and it's us talking about Roe v. Wade and also gay marriage in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And uh, we recorded part of it ahead of time. And then we recorded a recent update. So the episode is kind of a two-parter where it has our thoughts from before Roe was overturned. And then it has a very up-to-date, to-the-minute thoughts after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So check it out. I think it's a very intelligent and informative and insightful um, an historical interview where we get into the history of Obergefell v. Hodges and Lawrence v. Texas. So I hope you enjoy that or at least feel like you learned something or at least feel like Mal is funny. Um, last Friday, we had a Q&A with Rachel Rogers. And on that note, there's going to be some new formats coming up. We're going to be doing some breakdowns and takedowns, which is where a guest and I are going to read a money book, watch a money show talk about a money history moment, anything like that, songs, TV shows, podcasts, movies, books, anything. And we're going to uh, recap it, review it, and then talk about the moment in history that it represents uh, or the the uh, zeitgeisty topic or the hot button topic that it represents. Uh, for instance, we're going to be reading a Dave Ramsey book. We're going to be talking about uh, the portrayal of shopaholics in um, movies. We're going to be talking about the 2008 recession. We're going to be talking about Black Monday, which was a stock market crash in 1987. You guys are going to learn. You're going to love. You're going to laugh. You're going to live. On today's show, I'm going to read three Facebook comments, an Instagram comment, a Discord comment, two five-star Apple reviews, and welcome our new patrons. And then in the second half of the show, we have a voicemail and a huge backlog of emails, which I love. I love emails. Okay, so here is a Facebook comment from Joanna that says, for today's mailbag, maybe I misheard, but for the company credit card question, if the boss closes the account, I don't know if it could be affecting the writer's credit score still if the boss goes bankrupt or has other financial blunders. Obviously, look into this more yourself, but I think since it's closed, it's going to come off your account in a month or two anyway, and your credit score will get dinged a little bit, but there's not much actionable things that you need to do. Thank you, Joanna. Yeah, this is in regard to a listener who wrote in freaking out because uh, they realized that their credit was still attached to their boss's company Amex um, and it had actually helped their credit. And so they were like confused as to what they should do. Uh, So thank you, Joanna. It seems like Joanna's advice is you don't really have to do that much, but only if you make sure that it naturally comes off your credit score in one to two months. So I just wanted to give that update for that listener who wrote in. Uh, Daniel left a Facebook comment saying, I want Treconomics, where there's no such thing as scarcity or fighting for resources. We can be free to love, make art, and do as we please. I am a huge Star Trek fan, big Trekkie over here. Uh, And we have talked about, actually in an episode with Garrick Bernard from a while ago, if you search for it, we talk about money on the moon. Um, And he and I discuss the economy of Star Trek. So if you're interested in that, check out that episode with Garrick Bernard, G-A-R-R-I-C-K Bernard. Hadley wrote, Oh, Gabby, you're the best. I've turned two of my friends onto the pod recently. We all listen separately and then share our opinions. That's perfect. Everyone should be doing that. All of you. Every single one of you. Do it. Speaking of doing things that I like, on Instagram, Scolden Tape wrote, 
I'm at work and can't listen, but I have my phone playing the episode on silent in my pocket so I can contribute to those sweet, sweet listening on the day of release figures. And that and Hadley are the kind of dedication that we are looking for here at Bad With Money. If you can't provide me that, no, honestly, I'm just happy any of you are here at all. But that sort of dedication, listening and sharing with your friends, talking about the show with your friends, and then also just playing me quietly in your pocket so I get listens, I'll take it. I will take it, you guys. So thank you so much to those people who wrote in. Those really tickled my fancy. Um, Now I'm going to read two really lovely Apple reviews. This one is from Harper Phillips. It says, a must for anti-capitalists. Gabby is the best. This show has been such a huge part of transforming my relationship with money for the better. It's been my guide to learning how to talk about money openly and without shame. With exceptional nuance and an intersectional perspective, if you're an anti-capitalist who doesn't want to get run over by our financial system, this show is a must. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Harper Phillips. That's a really lovely review. Our second review is from Maddie at Podcasting You, and it says, Five stars. Incredible podcast. This podcast is truly transformative. Gabby is an incredible host and educates, informs, and inspires in every episode. That is so lovely, Maddie. Thank you so much. Inspires? I inspire? I inspire? I've I've got a big head now. I've always had a big head. And finally, on this front, we're going to welcome two new patrons from patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn, Jamie and Lily Adams. Thank you two for joining the squad. Really appreciate it. Um, And now I want to do one more comment and then we're going to get to all the emails and uh, the voicemail that you guys left. And you left a bunch of voicemails, actually, but we're saving them for our future episode about childcare, surrogacy, pregnancy, uh, and IVF. So uh, thank you to all those people. If you sent in a voicemail about that, we got like a ton of them. I'm not going to play them this week, but I will play them in that episode. So I'm not ignoring you. Don't worry. So in the episode with Rachel Rogers that aired on Friday, last Friday, she and I got into a really amazing conversation about enabling and... um, and financial enabling. And she was answering a question from a listener about uh, what to do when a sibling or a member of your family, you feel that they're being financially enabled or you're enabling how to not enable bad behavior. Um, And I thought this was a really interesting Discord comment that I wanted to read. Uh, I don't say people's names on the Discord because I just like keeping Discord a little bit more private for people unless they tell me I can say their name. So this person wrote, I thought the discussion about enabling on yesterday's episode was very on point. As the bad with money person in my family, and as someone who has people with alcoholism in my family, I can totally see how it's just not a sustainable solution. Was just talking to my therapist about allowing people to hit rock bottom, even though it's scary and risky, because it forces the person to make a change. I always wished my family could help me with money more, but eventually I realized that the more I assumed I should be able to ask my mom to help me with like credit card debt or something, the less I believed in my own ability to do it. I am grateful that she helped me in small ways when she could, but even I could tell it didn't solve the problem I had with being bad with money. So I just try to avoid talking about it with her now. If she had said no before I decided to stop expecting help from her, I would have probably been fueled to solve the problem myself sooner. So this doesn't apply to everyone, but that is a little bit um, more insight into what Rachel and I were talking about in the Q&A episode. I come from a family with a a long history of addiction, um, and we really got into that on that episode. So if that comment sounded interesting to you, but you haven't heard the episode, go listen to the episode. 
In the second half of our show, I'm going to read your emails about finances and chronic illness, a suggestion for an episode about co-ops, a very thorough and delightful email about finding this show during a bipolar episode, one about the fall of Roe v. Wade, one about IRAs potentially being scams, and one from someone who claims to be an ethical landlady. Then, a preview of our upcoming pet insurance episode with one email and one voicemail on the topic, and an email complimenting my Bad With Money book, which of course I'm going to read. Okay, when we return, I'm going to talk about finances and chronic illness, co-ops, bipolar disorder, Roe v. Wade, IRAs, pet insurance, ethical landlords, and my Bad With Money book. Stay tuned. Okay, and we're back. Hi, Gabby. I can't imagine another financial person touching my question, but it seems like something you might engage with. I'd like to hear your thoughts and also know if there are any specialists in this area of finance. What's some sound financial advice for people who have chronic health conditions? And of course, mental health is health, especially those of us who have to interface with the rules and regs of the social safety net. I'm thinking specifically of needing Medicare, and so I have to stay on SSDI and comply with financial restrictions about how much I can make and how I can save and invest that haven't been updated for over 30 years. Even if I could cross the financial gap, which might be possible one day soon, I definitely can't cross the financial gap and cover my health insurance and save for times where I can't work at all or as much. I love what Rachel Rogers said on your latest episode about economic power for individuals who are traditionally underrepresented and disadvantaged. Does that apply to those of us with disabilities too and how? Rock on, Carter. Carter, let me provide some resources for you. There is an amazing activist named Imani Barberin who goes by Crutches and Spice who talks about disability on all levels. She is incredible. If you don't know her, go Google her immediately and follow her on everything. Her name is Imani Barberin. You are going to love her. There's also Chantal Chapman who talks uh, about trauma and money. Um, She is at the Instagram account Trauma of Money. Um, She is also incredible on the topic of mental health and money. Um, There is an episode that we did with someone named Chloe McKenzie, who has written a lot about trauma and money. That was a bad with money episode we did. And then in terms of um, disability, we have spoken to Carrie Wade in an episode a long time ago. But if you look that up, there's a discussion there. And then we did uh, an episode about neurodivergence and money with um, my partner, Mal Blum, and also an autism expert. And we talked about autism and ADHD in regards to money. Um, But yes, if you haven't heard of Imani Barberin, you absolutely should. Uh, And also, if you haven't heard of Trauma of Money, go there immediately. Okay, next email. I was listening to your mailbag episode today, and there was a Discord comment from someone who suggested covering co-ops, and I just want to enthusiastically second that. We only seem to have a few co-ops here in America, but when I visited Central Canada a few years ago, I was kind of shocked to see that there were co-op stores, banks, gas stations, farms, and housing all over the place. I visited tiny towns where the only store or bank in town was a co-op and found out that there had been a social democratic political party called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, now the New Democratic Party. When the CCF led Saskatchewan in the late 1940s, they created the first socialized healthcare in Canada. Ever since, I have thought that co-ops were actually the answer to a lot of problems in America, but no one really knows about them here. So please do an episode. Thank you, CJ. Thank you, CJ. And if you are Canadian, please write in about this. We don't talk about Canada enough on this show. But yes, I do want to do an episode about co-ops. And if you are Canadian and you have experienced this too, please write in. I would love to hear about it. 
Okay, this is an email from Emily, a pretty timely email. Um, it was sent just two days ago. Hi, Gabby. Longtime listener, first time emailer. Love the show. Thanks for all that you do. At the end of the last episode with Rachel Rogers, you mentioned that you wanted to do another episode on medical debt. With the fall of Roe this week, I think a really timely and interesting topic would be financial aspects of abortion access, particularly abortions beyond 12 weeks, which are surgical and harder to access. I'm part of an online support group of parents who have ended wanted pregnancies for medical reasons, and the amount of medical debt people carry after their abortions is staggering. For example, a woman recently joined the group who works for a VA hospital in-state where abortion is legal. She had an abortion after fetus was diagnosed with trisomy 18. Trisomy, trisomy 18. I don't, I I'm so sorry. I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, T-R-I-S-O-M-Y 18. Insurance company just sent a letter saying they're not covering because her life wasn't in danger and they don't cover elective abortions. With anesthesia, etc., her bill is over $10,000. With the fall of Roe and many people needing interstate travel for abortion access, the medical debt aspect of all of this is going to impact many more people. I imagine many insurance plans will try to leverage this is elective, this is out of network, whatever, in order to not cover these abortions. I have lived experience of abortion medical debt, but wouldn't be a good guest on this topic. I have various types of positional privilege, cishet white lady, healthcare professional, mom is a lawyer, private insurance, and successfully fought every fucking bill I received related to my abortions, although it took many months and a lot of emotional pain. But there are many people in my online support group who are eager to share their stories. It's a private group that I could connect you with group admin who is the conduit for media inquiries. Thanks for considering, Emily. Emily, yes, I'm going to email you back. I absolutely want to talk to um, someone for our childcare episode. That would be amazing because we're also covering childcare, surrogacy, pregnancy, um, IVF. And then I would love to add abortion to that list. And I would love to talk to someone uh, about abortion along the lines of what you're talking about. So I will be in touch, Emily. Um, I think this is a really important addition to the show. And I really appreciate you writing in about this. And your experience is valid just because you don't think you would be a good guest. Um, I appreciate you sharing very, very much. If you are looking for more information on this, aidandabetabortion.com is a great place to start. Shout your abortion, but just go to aidandabetabortion.com. Okay, let's get into this anonymous email. Well, they said I could call them Phi. Okay. Dear Gabby, I started listening to you long ago at the beginning of season one. Back then, I very much was bad with money and knew I was benefiting off the generational wealth of my grandparents who were children of the Depression. I was absolutely awestruck to learn that after their death, my grandparents had over $100,000 in their checking account alone. It wasn't like we had a distant old money relation or anything. Both my grandparents were the children of immigrants. But this to me stands out as what used to be possible under the sensible legislation we used to have. My grandma left home at 16 and ended up becoming a nurse. My grandpa was the son of local shopkeepers. They met as young adults and were married for 68 years. Grandkids got nothing, but my mother and her sister got tons. I never asked about what remained of their other assets because at the time I was just focused on how much I missed my grandma, but I did hear them mentioned, so I do know they existed. There are so many things I could say about the financial dynamics and drastic wealth disparities of my mother and her sisters, as they all ended up in different socioeconomic classes. But back to 2016 when I started listening to you. I had the worst attention span and honestly hated podcasts at the time. Yours was the only one I could even kind of listen to. In the time since then, I've had the honestly soul-crushing experience of having to realize that the family I loved, my mother, stepfather, and brothers, were actually horrendously toxic. 
I was the scapegoat and the identified patient. Family mobbing was highly present. And no amount of growth would ever make me enough because I was not allowed to be a good person, unofficially, of course. I had been trying since I was 15. A question I've gotten many times since then is, well, if it was so bad, why didn't you leave sooner? And this was when I was reaching out to anyone I could to get some validation that what I was experiencing wasn't okay. And even abuse hotlines blamed me and tried to say a mother couldn't be abusive and why didn't I leave? It's been something that follows me everywhere because people insist up and down that I'm just an ungrateful brat and that it's impossible for mothers to be abusive. Well, here it is since many people judge a person in their 20s saying such a thing. For most of my life, I believed them. I believed everything was my fault and that I was the only thing wrong with my family, and I tried for 10 years to be better for them. Upon realizing what was actually happening, I did what most people would do upon realizing an important relationship in their life was fractured so heavily. I tried to talk with my mother, and I tried to work it out, only to be shut down every time. The relevant question then became, how long would it take you to give up on your mother? And eventually I did give up and tried to plan a way to leave safely. Unfortunately, I did not get to do this as one night things got so bad that I ended up leaving in what has been explained to me as a trauma-induced episode. Double unfortunately, this happened in March of 2020, and though after leaving I was able to find an abuse shelter that would accept me, that quickly fell through when lockdown hit. I ended up homeless for a while and it was terrifying. At this point, I also had bipolar and CPSD diagnoses, so really not easy. Something I've heard a couple times but haven't seen to be too prevalently talked about is that the number one most common factor amongst homeless people isn't mental illness or addiction. It's child abuse. I'd love to see that talked about more, though I know you hit on it a bit with how LGBTQ plus people make up a disproportionate amount of homeless youth. Eventually, I was able to get an apartment during the pandemic and supported myself with a job as a cashier, only to lose it again in a pretty severe manic episode. Homeless again, I started to think I was doomed to this for life, that if the CPSD didn't cost me everything, bipolar would. Flash forward to now and I have an apartment again. I started working a very low-key job that deals with heavy machinery and I started looking for podcasts to listen to. Don't worry, I don't operate the machines. They're just loud and stationary. We all wear earbuds or earplugs of some kind, so podcasts are more than doable. First thing I thought to look for was the only one that could hold my attention before. Bad with Money with Gabby Dunn. And wow, something that I always at least half remembered was that you were a fellow bipolaroid. And holy crap, dude, you bought a house? Hearing that a podcaster who I last remembered for having poor money scripts is now a homeowner making and managing investments and consistently asking questions that knock the socks off the guests, it made me feel like I might actually have a shot at this life thing. I really, really want to thank you for that. Please feel free to read as much or as little of this as makes sense to you. I tend to have trouble discerning what's necessary for context and I keep seeing things as relevant to your podcast. Also, CPSD is under the umbrella of acquired neurodivergence and relearning people is a bitch. All my best. Fi. I'm going to cry. I'm like really going to cry. Um, thank you so much for that email. All of the context was necessary. All of the sharing was necessary. I also have never heard the word bipolaroid before, which I will be using to identify myself in the future. It's hard for me sometimes to see how far I've come on this show because I'm not a listener. And so, you know, I remember feeling the struggle of where I was and I remember feeling sad and I have, that's, I think what allows me to have so much compassion for, for people and to remember that a lot of this stuff is like so compounded and systemic and not doable. Um, but having you put it this way is this plainly, um, Thank you. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to cry. 
Um, whew. Okay. This is an email from BB. Let's go to another email before I lose it. Hey, Gabby. I've been a weekly listener since the very, very beginning, and this is my first time reaching out. Lately, you and your guests have been mentioning tax-deferred investment slash retirement accounts like 401ks and IRAs and the importance of maxing them out each year to take advantage of their long-term benefits. Very recently, someone even said listeners shouldn't even begin to invest in brokerage accounts until they had maxed out their 401k for the year. This advice comes up all the time in financial discussions and must-do lists, but I don't believe it. I understand the long-term benefits, but ultimately you're locking your money away until you're 59 and a half, unless you want to pay early withdrawal penalties. I'm 32 and I've always been obsessed with buying a house in Los Angeles of all places. Because of that, I stopped maxing out my 401k when I was 25 after having only contributed to it for two years. After quitting my office job and going freelance, I had enough money to buy a home by the time I was 30, now 32, and it took a lot more liquid cash than I ever could have expected. A big reason I was able to afford the house was because I had not maxed out my 401k, but instead switched to investing in tech stocks in 2015, which did great over the next five years, and I was able to pull money out and use it. When it came time to make repairs in my new home, I had to borrow money from my parents, privilege I know, but I wouldn't have had to borrow at all if I had access to the 30k I had locked away in my 401k. I know you can take out 10k for a first home purchase, but the buying process was so crazy, stressful, and insane that I simply didn't even have time, let alone a financial advisor available to help me figure that out before it was too late. Only two years later and my house has gained a ton in equity and whenever I want, I could do a cash out refinance and purchase a second property. But for now, I'm a bit cash poor, though that 30K in my 401k is still sitting there losing money every day. It's down to 20K now. And now that I've bought my first home already, I can never pull it out again without paying the fees until I'm 59 and a half. Everyone says I'm crazy for talking this way, but I would have never, ever, ever been able to afford my house if I had taken everyone's advice and maxed out my retirement funds, and the 200 k in equity made over two years is nothing compared to whatever taxes I would have saved down the road. Maybe, but talk to me in 30 years when I've leveraged every property's home to build a tastefully remodeled, non-price-gouging rental empire. Oh boy, BB. That's my real retirement plan and seems a lot more effective and liquid to deal with sudden illness and other changes that come with life. Contributing to retirement seems to actually keep you poor by taking away your ability to make big money moves with your own savings that can have much bigger results in long-term wealth building and current day lifestyle than whatever your money will be worth in 30 years. Big fan. Thanks for letting me pop off. BB. Wow. Okay. I have never considered that before. Uh, BB, you have blown my mind. I don't know if, if you're right. I don't know if you're right, but... It certainly worked for you. And if you have this experience also, please write in. I want to know if more people have have this opinion and they've been thinking it secretly this whole time they've been listening to this show and judging me. I don't know if what you're saying works is like works for everyone. I don't know <sighs> because advice is not one size fits all, but you did you did kind of you did kind of shake me there a little bit. My mind is a little blown. Also, my goodness, we're going to get into real estate because here's another email (sighs) talking about landlords. Here we go. Gabby, I'm a big fan of your podcast and love your radical yet humble vibe. You know, for example, we're all learning all the time, but also capitalism can go right off and fuck itself. Yeah, thank you. That's kind of my vibe. I'm reaching out because I'm a queer feminist, commie pinko liberal Gen Xer who is working on building personal wealth by owning long term rental properties. And I am humbly trying to be a 
Gasp. Fair and ethical landlady. What the fuck does that mean? Well, I'm not trying to extract as much money as possible from my properties. I actively recruit queer BIPOC tenants, and I treat tenants like human beings that I'm in community with versus having an antagonistic relationship with them, which is typical. In other words, I'm working on sharing my power as a property owner within limits. If you ever want to hear a unique perspective on landlording, ugh, this word, then I'm here for it. And frankly, I'd love to be challenged so I can think harder about my own power and hopefully grow too. Andrea. Whoo, we're going to have to do that landlord episode, guys. I'm really going to have to do it because, yeah, we, <laughs> I would also love to see people challenged. Maybe we make people debate. Is this that kind of show? Am I Bill Maher? Okay, anyway. I'm not Bill Maher, Jesus, and I never will be. Okay, this is an email from Martha. It says, hi, Gabby. Sorry to send you just a plain Jane email, but I don't really do the social media thing much and don't have those accounts to contact you with. As a veterinarian, I am really excited to hear that you have an upcoming episode on pet insurance. I teach veterinary students about a variety of medical and non-medical topics, including personal finance and business ownership. As a result, I consume a lot of personal finance media and then can make good recommendations to my students for more resources. I love your approach to the money topic and trying to dispel the fear of money in your listeners. I wanted to reach out about the pet insurance topic as discussions about managing the cost of pet care often turn into complaint sessions about veterinarians and their prices. You always seem to present a balanced set of perspectives with your topics, but for this one, I just felt like I wanted to reach out in advance and make sure you had someone to provide that perspective for this episode. People often compare the cost of pet care with what they pay for their own health care, where the often really substantial costs are shared with the insurance company. People are used to making a $20 copay to see their doctor or have blood tests done. Instead of a third-party payer system, vets are providing often the same level of medical care at a cost that is way less when you include the portion covered by many insurance companies for human care. So pet insurance can be a big help and is underutilized in the U.S. compared to the U.K. Europe. Anyway, I've gone off the deep end here with my own rant. Just wanted to make sure you have someone to provide that side of the story. If you need a veterinarian's perspective included, I would be happy to give you some ideas for who to speak with. Thanks for all you do in the personal finance realm, Martha. Yes, we did talk last week about whether veterinarians are a scam. Thank you so much to Martha for writing in. This perspective is definitely needed. Thank you for writing in from the perspective of a vet. Again, I really feel like some someday I should get all of you guys on the show and you can just debate each other and I'll just sit back and enjoy it. Okay, this is our last email and then I'm gonna play a voicemail that kind of has to do with our last our email from before, but I just wanna give myself a quick little compliment. So this is an email from Lisa that says, Hi Gabby, I just finished reading your book, Bad With Money, and I wanted to tell you that your writing style is so captivating. Even though the book has been out for a while, I binge read your book after taking it out from the library. I live in a relatively small city with only one public library, so seeing that your book was ordered, I know that there is someone out there within my little city that is also a fan of your podcast. Thanks for all the content, Lisa. Lisa, go find them! Go find them! That's your soulmate! Wouldn't that be a fun little meet cute? Okay, someone else wrote in about pet insurance, and then I hope this whets your appetite for our full pet insurance episode. Uh, so this is the voicemail from Rebecca from New Hampshire, also talking about pet insurance. And then I will let you go into your weekend. Hi, Gabby. This is Rebecca from New Hampshire. I'm calling in about a pet story and money, uh, sort of. So one thing I was thinking about when you were asking for uh, stories from people who have spent a lot of money on their pets is that 
I can't have a pet in my apartment. And when I was apartment hunting, it was so hard to find an apartment in my price range that allowed pets. So that whole problem of apartments and renting uh, makes it harder for people who want to have pets but maybe don't have a huge amount of expendable income. Uh, so that's a that's just another interesting perspective I wanted to call in about. Uh, love your show. Have a great one, Gabby. Okay, so this is something that I have a lot of feelings about because uh, you have to pay pet rent sometimes. My dog pays pet rent. Every month he has to, I have to pay a fee to have him at the house. He doesn't have a job, you guys. Why am I paying rent for him? And if you have a reason why pet rent exists, let me know. I'll probably not agree with you. So anyway, one last thing is that we are doing a write-in episode, a call-in episode. You have left a lot of voicemails. I would love even more about childcare, pregnancy, surrogacy, IVF, and abortion. We're adding abortion now. Please send in any of your stories about the cost of those things, um, tips, tricks, or just personal stories that you want to share. We're going to do a whole episode about this. And the people who left a lot of voicemail, I know there was like, you know, I think like six people left voicemails. I got those voicemails. We're holding on to them for that episode. So don't worry. I would love to hear from you about anything else. Be sure to send me an email at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also email me a voice memo if you prefer. Join our online communities too. We're on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Patreon, and Facebook. Links to all of these will be listed in the episode description. Don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word or just listen to it in your pocket like that one person does. And don't forget to leave a five-star Apple review. Thank you so much. I love you guys. Bye. Done.